Well, if you'd open with me to Luke chapter 3. We're going to pick up where Andrew left off in his message last week. And I'm actually, uh, I'm going to start in verse 4, if that's okay. Can we switch it up? Can we read more of the Bible together this morning? (laughs) Um, So why don't we start in verse 4. And if you're using a pew Bible, it's page 858. I guess I could say that for anybody who's grabbed that. Okay, so Luke chapter 3. This is the word of God to us this morning. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, this is John the Baptist, um, right? Who that, that verse we just read is from Isaiah, a thousand years before Jesus lived, but it's prophesying forward to when Jesus would be. Um, John said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we, well, we have Abraham as our father. In other words, because I'm a Jew, I have a special place with God, and I don't even have to live differently. I, can, I just have an in with God because my parents, you know, I, I've been a Christian my whole life. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what should we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. Let's pray. Um, Father, this text is for me. And for all of us here in this room who might be tempted to think that by our, by our own merits, by our, uh, what we say with our mouth, um, the fact that we go to church and have been here our whole lives, that that, that gives us some special exemption, Lord, from being a, a person who loves and a person who sacrifices and follows you. And I just pray that, uh, as Andrew pre- uh, preaches this morning, I pray that we would be convicted, if we need to be convicted, of, of a need to repent, of a need to turn um, to, from, from sin. Um, Lord, it's on my mind, right? There might be somebody here in this room who is, who is so deep in, in sin that they 
feel like they have to hide um, all the time. Um, maybe the, maybe they have their parents or their wife fooled so much that that they don't even they wouldn't even suspect what's going on behind closed doors at night. I just pray for that person right now. Um, please, please use this message to, to pierce into that place and to show everyone here that there is grace at the foot of the cross. Um, and, and I pray that, as, as that verse we read said, that the rough places shall be made level and there would be a, a straight path laid in our hearts to you and that we would all see your salvation. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Or you could say, you poisonous snakes. You poisonous snakes. Who warned you about the wrath to come? Or maybe more how we would say it today is, you are children of your father, the devil. And unless you turn from your sin, unless you repent, you will perish. How do those thoughts hit you? How do they strike you? Because those are very in-your-face words, right? You brood of vipers. You brood of vipers. You poisonous snakes. When, when you hear those words, are, are you tempted to get defensive? Are you offended by those words? Do you, do you want to say, whoa, 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 let's, let's tone that down. Let's, let's, let's water that down a little bit. You brood of vipers, come on. That's too strong. How do those words hit you? What's your reaction uh, to that very strong statement from the scriptures? You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Powerful words, sharp words, cutting words. What would you say or how would you react uh, to your doctor if your doctor was to say to you, you have cancer and it's going to kill you. You need radical treatment. You need radical surgery to get that, that, that cancer out of you. But if you'll have this radical surgery, we will get all that cancer out of you. It's going to be hard. It's going to be a battle. But you will live. How would you react to that statement? Because cancer, if you have it, you need the truth. And if you have cancer, you must deal with it radically. How much more with the cancer of sin. It must be dealt with radically. And so the message from, from God's word this morning to myself and each one of us here this morning is deal radically with your sin. Repent from your sin. Have a radical change of mind that will lead to a radical change of life. Repent, deal radically with your sin. 
We're going to unfold that and think about that and talk about that as we make our way through uh, Luke chapter 3, verses 7 through 14. And there's two points this morning. Point number one from verses 7 and 8 is a radical message. John the Baptist has a radical message. And then uh, in verses uh, 10 through 14, uh, we have a radical response. The radical response. So John the Baptist, uh, we get a glimpse into his preaching. In verse 7, he uses shocking language, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? It doesn't get much more severe than that. That's strong language. If you can recall with me, Adam and Eve uh, were tricked in the garden. They were deceived in the garden by the serpent who was Satan. And so when we read in this text, you brood of vipers, to declare that they are poisonous snakes was to say they are living under the control of Satan. That their father is not God, but Satan. John clearly was not trying to win friends. Uh, John was not afraid to offend. Uh, John is full of fire and full of zeal for the mission he's been given. And that mission, which was just read in verses 4 through 6, is to prepare the way for the Messiah. And he prepares the way by proclaiming, repent, turn from your sins. There is no salvation. There is no forgiveness apart from repentance. You must repent. Who warned you to flee? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That's his message. Sharp words, blunt words, sharp words so that it can cut through our hard hearts. Blunt words so that it might wake us up, shock us, jolt us, to the reality of sin. There is an account of a preacher named Peter Cartwright who once preached to Andrew Jackson, President Andrew Jackson. As he was preparing to preach before the service, he was warned not to say anything out of line. Uh, and Cartwright got up to preach, and he said, I, I understand that uh, President Jackson is here, and I've been told to be guarded in what I say. And then he said, if Andrew Jackson does not repent, Andrew Jackson will go to hell. The congregation was shocked. And this is a true story. I'm not making this up. The congregation was shocked by that statement. And afterwards, uh, the president came up and shook his hands and said to him, Sir, if I had a regiment like you, I could whip the world. We need more John the Baptist. We need more Peter Cartwrights, who are not afraid to speak God's truth, who are bold and courageous, who are unashamed of the gospel, unashamed, unafraid to offend, 
uh, who are not full of flattery, but speak the truth in love. And John the Baptist speaks plainly about the wrath to come. He faithfully warns that all who heard that God has an axe, and he has it at the root, and he's ready to chop the trees down that don't bear fruit and burn them in the fire. Jesus spoke clearly and lovingly also about the reality of the wrath to come. In fact, we know that Jesus spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. Some things that he, uh, some words that he used to describe hell are found in Mark chapter 9, verse 48. In that verse, he describes hell as the place where the worm never dies and the fire is not quenched. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 42, he describes hell as a blazing furnace where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. A blazing furnace. The Apostle Paul, much in keeping with John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ, warns in Romans chapter 2, verse 5, that if we're unrepentant, if we continue on in our sins stubbornly and willfully, that God is storing up wrath on the day of wrath in his storehouse, that, that the more we refuse to repent and the more we sin and, and go on in rebellion, that that wrath is building and building and building and one day will break. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 8, we read the wicked, which are any who have not placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the wicked shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire. Have you ever burned your finger or, or any part of your body? I can remember clearly as, as a boy burning my finger on a stovetop. It's cliche. <laughs> but when you burn your finger, it instantly blisters, right? Or wherever it is you're burned, it blisters and it aches, it throbs for hours. Now think of a blazing furnace that you're thrown body and soul in. Excruciating agony excruciating agony. Now who were those brood of vipers seeking to flee God's wrath that are mentioned there in verse 7? Who are these brood of vipers? I would suggest to you that they are groupies. They are insincere phonies. Uh, they want to get baptized, but they have no intention of leading a changed life. They want to get out of danger, but they still want to be snakes. They wanted to escape God's judgment. They wanted to keep living the way that they've always been living. So John compares them to snakes that are slithering away from a bushfire. They're, they're fleeing the fire. They're, they have no intention of changing. They have every intention of continuing in their snake-like ways. And so John says to them in, in verse 7 and verse 8 that if you're going to escape the coming wrath, you must do what? Verse 8, you must bear fruits in keeping with repentance. That's the only way you can escape judgment. 
You must repent. You must bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You must have a radical change of mind that leads to a radical change in life. You must bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and they must not for one second think that just because they have Abraham as their father, just because they have some kind of lineage or ethnicity or ancestry, that they're safe and secure from that fire. It says in verse 8, do not begin to say to yourselves, right? Don't even begin to think it. Not for one nanosecond. Don't say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So scriptures here are, are, are saying, they're teaching that ancestry or lineage or being a, a Jew or a Hebrew does not secure you or give you safety from God's wrath. That ancestry, trust in your ancestry or your lineage or just because you're a Jew, that's a false confidence. That's a false confidence that does not, that cannot, that will not ever save you. It is a great privilege, a wonderful privilege to be a Jew. That's God's special chosen people. But unless they have repented and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, it does them no good, eternally speaking. And the same is true for us. Sometimes uh, we'll speak about being born in a, in a Christian country, supposedly. Growing up in a Christian home. Going to a Christian church. And living a moral life. Often people will speak of those things. But listen, those things mean nothing if you have not personally repented and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, no baptism, no amount of church attendance, no amount of money, no amount of, of good works, wherever else you want to throw in there, no amount of any of that accomplishes anything. It doesn't impress God. It, it doesn't move God. Only repentance. None of that can substitute for repentance, for turning from your sin and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. You can say all the right things. You can be at all the right places. You can sit in these chairs day in and day out. But if there is no repentance, there is no salvation. If there is no evidence of an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, no growing love for him, no growing desire to be with him and to be like him, no love for his people, no growing hatred of sin, no growing attraction to Jesus, then it all means nothing. Nothing. It means nothing. You must turn from your sin and bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And there's no time to delay. There's no time to delay. Notice again what our text says in verse 9. Even now. When? Now. Right now. The axe is laid 
to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So there's no place for these false confidences and false securities and false safeties that we're prone to put our trust in. It must be repentance, and it must be now. There's no time to delay. Some, some want their sins to be forgiven, but they're not ready to repent. We talked about that last week, yes? It seems like everybody wants forgiveness, but nobody wants to do what? Repent. Everyone wants to lose weight, but no one wants to live that lifestyle that it requires to lose that weight, right? And nobody wants, it seems, to repent. We love our sin too much. We, we want forgiveness. We, we suppose we want to live with the Lord and, and, and those things, but then we love our sin. You can't have both. Maybe you say, I just, I just want to have some fun first, or I want a little more time to, to party, or a little more time to make some money, or a little more time to pursue my own interest, to, to gratify my desires. Or you say, you know what, you know what? I'll, I'll get serious about this once I get out of high school. Or I'll, I'll get serious about the Lord once I get out of college. Or I'll get serious about the Lord once we have kids. I'll get serious about the Lord after I get retired. Just keep delaying, delay, delay. What does our verse say? Even now, the ax is laid at the root of the trees. Now it is. It is never now, it is always later for us But scripture says it is now. God will not be mocked. This is not an empty threat. God has sharpened his axe. It is in his hand. He is ready to chop the trees down and throw them in the fire that are not bearing fruit. There is never a better time than now. Right now. to have a radical change of mind about sin leading to a radical change of life for the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no better time than now. Don't delay. Stop putting it off, stop waiting. Now is the time, now is the day of salvation. And never have a better chance than right now. Well, that's the radical message. And a radical message like that requires, demands, a radical response. And so I love verse 10, where the crowd asks him, what then shall we do? And that question actually gets repeated a few times in the text, but that radical message, that that offensive, sharp, stinging message has gone out. You brood of vipers who warned you, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And you gotta love this radical response to that radical message. What then shall we do? That's the right question, yes? What then shall we do? 
They've been struck to the heart. The, the Spirit has been convicting. They realize they're in wrong and they must be prepared for the Messiah. What then shall we do? That's a great question to ask. And John has already told them, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And in verses 10 through 14, he's going to get a little bit more specific. Uh, but before we look at those verses, verses 10 through 14, I just want to say a few words about repentance. I want to amplify a little bit what we said last week. And I'm doing this because repentance has been very watered down in our day and age. In fact, you don't even hear it that often. And then when you do, it gets defined as little more than remorse. It's been very watered down. It's lost the punch that it has. So we need to spend just a few moments thinking about repentance. We also need to spend a few moments thinking about that because, as has been emphasized, there is no salvation without repentance. It doesn't get any more important than this. No repentance, no forgiveness. No repentance, no salvation. And so we must consider, what is repentance? What is repentance? And I would say to you this morning that repentance begins with a godly sorrow. It begins with a godly sorrow, with feelings of regret and sadness. We see that, for example, from Joel chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, where the prophet says, the Lord says to the prophet, even now, return to me with all your heart, and notice this, with fasting and weeping and mourning. So yes, repentance begins with this deep remorse or feelings of sorrow and conviction about your sin, but there we have to be careful because there is a sharp distinction between what the Bible calls godly sorrow and what the Bible calls worldly sorrow. You see, most people, when they think repentance, they think worldly sorrow. They feel bad because they got caught. That's worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is, I got caught, and you're embarrassed by that, or you're bothered by that. But quite frankly, given the opportunity, you would do it all over again. And next time you do it, you'd be a little bit better at it because you got caught before and you learned from your mistakes, right? You're still a snake. You're still snake in the grass ways. There hasn't been that, that transformation. Again, worldly sorrow is feeling bad because you got caught and you don't like the consequences. True repentance starts with godly sorrow, but you have that sorrow because you sinned, not because you got caught. You, you, you realize and you recognize you sinned against God and it breaks your heart. It crushes you that you sinned against God. Let me compare and contrast worldly and godly sorrow this way. Worldly sorrow is self-focused. As I said, it hates the consequences of sin it's self-protective. Worldly sorrow blames others. It's always blaming others. Worldly sorrow also impatiently demands restoration. 
It impatiently demands trust. Why don't you trust me yet? Why don't you trust me? Why can't this or this or this? It's very, very impatient. Worldly sorrow also criticizes the disciplinary process and ultimately has an unchanged heart. Now contrast that with godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is God-focused. Godly sorrow cries out with David in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned, O God. Godly sorrow hates the sin, not just because of its consequences, but because of what it is. It's rebellion against God. It has offended his holiness and his righteousness, and it breaks your heart. And thus, godly sorrow will fully accept responsibility. Godly sorrow is done with excuses. Godly sorrow eliminates the if or 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 but or whatever excuse it is that we have. Godly sorrow eliminates that from your vocab. Godly sorrow patiently submits to discipline and accountability and ultimately demonstrates that changed heart by bearing spiritual fruits. You're seeing the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. They both begin with remorse, but the remorse are for very different reasons. And it by no means stops there. It, it begins with this sorrow that leads to bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. You're so broken over your sin that you have a radical change of mind, which then leads to a radical change in your life, a change from your allegiance to idols to the living God, a, a, an outlook that it no longer esteems sin but now hates sin. And that's not just a one-time deal, something you did once in your life. Repentance is the name of the game. Repentance is the Christian lifestyle. Repentance is the discipline of daily rebuilding life in alignment with God's will. You see, it's not, repentance is not feeling better because I finally got that off my chest. You ever hear it discussed that way? I feel so much better now I got that off my chest. That's not Repentance. That might be the first step, I hope it is, but if that's all it is, that's where you stop, that's not repentance, that's not change, you're still a snake. Repentance is embarking on a whole new direction in life. It is a Christ-centered direction. It is surrendering all those false securities, false confidences that we talked about earlier and coming to Jesus on his terms. So this morning, you say, well, I'm repentant, and the Bible says, oh yeah, prove it. Show it. You say that you're repentant. What's the fruits? Is there fruits? Is there a change in the way you think or act or behave? Has there been a radical change? Or is it just talk? We love to talk. Is it just talk? Now in verses 10 through 14, John's going to get a bit more specific. He, in verse 11, says this. He answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. A tunic was just basically a, a, an undershirt or shirt-like undergarment. Uh, they would usually wear, wear a couple of them to help with the cold uh, protection and those, those kind of things. The point there is very, very obvious. If you have two shirts, and you know someone who doesn't even have one shirt, then true repentance 
gives the person your extra shirt. Or same with food. If you have an abundance of food, or if you have two pieces of bread, you know someone else who has no bread, then you give them, repentance is you give them that piece of bread. There is no place for Christians being stingy. There is, there is no place for keeping things for yourself. A, a sure sign, John the Baptist says, of, of heartfelt repentance is you now have a love, a spirit of self-sacrifice for the welfare of others. You are now generous. So ask yourself, are you generous with your possessions? Do you share your home? Do you share your car, your clothing, your food? And do you do so joyfully, wholeheartedly? enthusiastically? Do you enjoy giving to those in need? Verse 12 is another example. The tax collectors this time, first it was the crowds, now it gets more specific. Verse 12 of the tax collectors, they also came to be baptized and they said, teacher, what shall we do? And you need to know that tax collectors were considered the lowest of the low. Uh, Tax collectors were considered traitors. They were hated and despised by their fellow Jews. Remember, Israel is under Roman law. And what Rome did was they would appoint these locals who would then collect taxes, and they would get a commission off those taxes. So if you catch that, their salary is linked to collecting taxes. Their salary, their profit is directly tied to how many taxes they collect. And what some of these tax collectors would do is demand more than Rome herself had demanded. And then they would pocket the change. Imagine your fellow countrymen doing that to you. And so they were very disliked, very hated. And so what John the Baptist says to them is, if you are going to bear fruit in keeping repentance, you need to stop being a tax collector. Is that what he said? He didn't say that, did he? You wish he said that, didn't you? He says, you need to be honest. He doesn't say stop being tax collectors. The government is authorized by God and has a right to tax. What they do not have a right to be is dishonest. They must be honest. They must stop abusing the system. The final example is found in verse 14. You have these soldiers who come up. They also ask him that wonderful question, we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. Be content with your wages. Now these soldiers are most likely fellow Jewish men also who have perhaps been constricted conscripted into uh, service or they've willingly done this, there's a very good chance that they protect the tax collectors. So these aren't very well-liked individuals either, and dissatisfied with their salary, sadly, they would use their authority to violently intimidate and extort, again, their fellow Jews. Uh, John says that should never be, that true repentance leads to contentment, right? So it says at the end of verse 14, be content with your wages. Don't threat. Don't make false accusations. That very much reminds me of Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, which says, don't love money and be content with what you have. Now, I want to ask you, have you noticed all three of these examples, the the crowds, the tax collectors, the Roman soldiers, uh, that it all revolves around money? 
Do you notice that? Did you catch that? The emphasis here that's on money. The love of money truly is the root of all kinds of evil. In fact, let me say it this way, that your budget, your bank account is a leading indicator of your spiritual health. Did you know that? Your budget, your bank account, the way you use your money, if you want to know if you're on track with, with a lot of what this is saying, those are leading indicators of how spiritually healthy you really are. Do an audit of your bank account. Do an audit of your budgets. And of course, John's message here is not exhaustive. He's dealing with the particular issues of his day and the crowds that are before him. There are many other sins from which one needs to repent, yes. We could add a lot to this. Do any of you grumble or complain? We would never do that, would we? I think we're pretty good at grumbling and complaining. I think we're pretty good at trying to sanctify it. Do you ever grumble and complain? Then the scriptures would say to you, repent. Do all things without grumbling and complaining. Do all things with thanksgiving. Are you a thankful person? Are you categorized by gratitude? Are you lazy at work? Do you, do you tend to cut corners at work? What does scripture say to you? Repent. Do all things mightily as unto who? The Lord. Perhaps you were arrogant or boastful or proud. The scriptures would say repent and humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Are you impatient? Repent because love is what? Patience. If you say you're a loving person, but you're constantly annoyed and bitter and upset and, and all of that, you're not loving. Right? Are you impatient? Repent. Love is patient. Love is kind. Are you rude or harsh or bitter? Repent. Again, love is kind. What's, what's Ephesians 4.32 say? Be tenderhearted and kind and forgiving one another as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you? Do you tend to rebel against your mom and dad? Again, the scriptures say repent and honor your mother and your father. Do you gossip? Repent. Speak only that which edifies and encourages and gives grace. Or do you prone to, to lie and manipulate? Again, repent and speak the truth in love. Do you lust? Are you caught in the trap of pornography? Again, repent. Vow that you will put no worthless things before your eyes. Vow to give yourself in selfless service because lusting is very selfish. Repent. Repent. That list, that list goes on and on, huh? Lovelessness, cold-hearted, prayerlessness, jealousy, selfishness, what kind of sinner are you? Where right now is the spirit prompting and poking and convicting? Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's a relationship that you have or a behavior that you're prone to or an attitude that you struggle with. Whatever the sin, you must repent. You must repent. Don't tolerate your sin. That's the message of our world, right? That's the message of our day and age. Tolerate sin, right? We talked about that a little bit last week. That's the message of today. Tolerate sin. Tolerate my sin, right? Tolerate. Tolerate the, the gender dysphoria. Tolerate a disease sexuality. 
tolerate homosexuality, tolerate friends with benefits, tolerate transgenderism, transgenderism, tolerate critical race theory, tolerate polygamy, tolerate my sin, right? That's the message of today. That's the message of today. And of course, it's, it's easy to kind of point the finger at, at those outside the church, but we as Christians, we have our own sins we love to tolerate, don't we? Gossip, anger. We must not tolerate sin. You know what happens when we tolerate sin? It ruins your life. You want to destroy a church? You want to kill a church overnight? Tolerate sin. You want to destroy your life? Tolerate sin. Like we talked about right at the beginning of the message, sin is a cancer. It needs to be dealt with radically. It must not be tolerated or minimized. We must call sin what it is. We must not blame others. We must not make excuses. We must not go into denial. We must not minimize it. We need to, we need to own it. In fact, let me say it this way. We have to call sin, sin, so that we can repent from it, and then we can know grace, right? We need to call sin, sin, so we can repent from it, and then call grace, grace. Call sin for what it is, then repent from it and receive God's grace and forgiveness. And God will forgive your sin. That's the gospel. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he died on the cross for our sins, that you might be forgiven of your sins, cleansed of your sins, wiped free from your sins, but more than that, declared righteous in his sight, justified in his sight. That's the gospel. That, that's, that's why we're here this morning. We're not here this morning because we're all perfect and don't need to repent. No, we're here this morning because we are a brood of vipers. <laughs> and we need to repent. No matter the sin, God will cleanse you and God will wash it away fully and freely and forever. Again, if you're sitting here and perhaps getting this some sort of sense or idea that you think that I have it all together or the people here think they have it all together, I would just say, you don't know me very well. Follow me around. Come to my house today and you'll see how much repenting I need to do. We all need to repent. So the message this morning, it stings. It's direct. Maybe it's offensive. It's to the point. It's blunt. How are you going to respond to that message? You brood of vipers. Who warned you? How do you expect to flee the, the wrath of God? That's a severe rebuke from the scriptures this morning. What's, what's your response to that? As far as I see, there's only two ways you can respond to that. One is you're offended and you leave here angrily. I hope that's nobody, but it's a real possibility. The other is you humble yourself and you repent. You recognize your sin. And you look with eyes of faith to the Lord Jesus Christ and you believe that he died on the cross for my sin and your sin. And that through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, your sin, no matter how awful, can be washed away, wiped away, cleansed away, fully and freely and finally forever. That's our Savior. That's why we repent. Because we love Jesus more than we love our sin. We just sang that song, Alleluia, all I have is Christ. All I have is Christ. 
He's rescued me from sin's domain, sin's power, sin's guilt, sin's death, sin's destruction. Jesus is my Savior. That's God's radical message for us this morning. Repent. Repent. And believe in the Lord Jesus Christ.